everyone who knows me knows that my dogs are never short on outfits. I buy leashes and collars like some people buy shoes and handbags. And my favorite collar is Iggy's custom-made Paco collar. Paco collars are 100% handmade from scratch by an amazing staff of artists, and the quality really is unparalleled. My dogs can't have collars that don't withstand wear and tear. They hike, they swim, they roll on dead stuff. These collars are guaranteed to last a lifetime, and they're designed to be worn by active dogs like mine. Iggy's collar is perfect for her. It's got purple stones, stars, and a beautiful design. There are literally thousands of design options to choose from, but don't worry. The staff at Paco loves helping customers pick out the best collar for their pets. That's exactly what they did when I went to their booth with Iggy. And they make stuff for humans too, so get over to PacoCollars.com and buy the best collar you've ever had, and don't forget to enter promo code COGDOG for free shipping. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is Cog Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I've had a ton of questions coming in about decompression walks, uh, specifically following my podcast where I took you guys on a decompression walk with me. So I thought I'd just take a minute to clear up some of the confusion, answer some of the questions, and try to make decompression walks feel a little bit more accessible. If you guys aren't familiar, decompression walk is something that, um, a a term that I just kind of use to describe the type of walk that I think is most beneficial for dogs. I think the best way to do it is off a leash, but you can certainly do it on a harness and a long line. And it needs to be done kind of in nature. So walking around on concrete doesn't usually do the trick. My preference is that the dog is allowed free movement, so restricted to a sidewalk doesn't really count. Um, so let's dive right into some of the questions. One of the big ones is that people ask, you know, they say, I only have one place to do decompression walks. Does it matter that I change the location or can I just stick to, you know, my one good spot? And the answer is the location doesn't matter as much as, um, the quality of the location. So if the location is perfect for decompression walks, meaning, you're not having a lot of, you know, arousing stimuli. You're not having a lot of triggers. The dog's allowed to be off leash or on a long line in a harness with some free movement. And it's just a great spot for you. It's convenient. So you're likely to go there. Keep that location. You do not need to change it, especially on kind of your daily or weekly basis. We want to be getting out there for decompression walks as often as possible And so we want to set ourselves up for success. If you've got an easy, accessible spot that works, you're going to use that spot more often. And I encourage you to just go ahead and do that. You don't need to change the location a lot. Novelty doesn't seem to have a huge effect on my dogs as far as, you know, how decompressed they are after the walk. I rotate between kind of three places, Um, two of my spots you know, I've got kind of my very, my closest spot, which is a 20 minute drive, a um, little bit further spot, 30 minute drive that is a little bit nicer. Um, 
And then I've got an hour drive spot that I really like, but I can only usually swing it about once a week because it is an hour uh, to and from each way. So, but I rotate between those three and then I only branch out really if I am going to another part of the state for another reason or I'm traveling or I'm meeting a friend or whatever. But generally speaking, my dogs hit two places most of the time and then that one other place kind of once a week. So people ask, you know, how long does this walk have to be? And the answer is, it depends. The answer is, how long does the walk have to be for your dog to truly experience decompression? And for my dogs, this looks like about a 45-minute minimum. Um, 30 minutes is like the barest minimum that I will do. Um, I shoot for an hour every day. Sometimes I only hit 45 minutes, um, but I do like an hour. If you've got a dog that's pretty crazy in the beginning of the walk, what I am going to say is that the walk has got to go long enough for them to not be that nuts. So one of my dogs is pretty hyped up at the beginning of the walk. She's super excited about going on a walk and she's got to be on the walk for at least 30 minutes before she is walking at a normal pace, no longer vocalizing and actually feeling decompressed. And then if we put her in the car immediately after that, we've got a couple of problems. One is she didn't actually experience much decompression, but the other is the potential for an operant conditioning kind of scenario there and the potential for her to, you know, limit those kind of calm behaviors because she feels like they lead to the end of the walk. So for her, it's an hour minimum because it takes about 30 minutes for her to chill out. And that depends on your dog. I've known dogs that it took an hour for them to calm down, in which case we're looking at a two hour minimum. So however long it takes for them to calm down, basically times two. Um, my dogs, AG and Felix, pretty much almost every day go on these walks. And so neither of them are nuts in the beginning of the walk. And they can, they can have a 30 minute walk and not have too many um, ill effects. But if they're only getting one, you know, a week, it needs to be an hour and a half, two hours. Um, it's better to do one every day that's a shorter distance than to do one longer one a week um, is what I've observed anyway. You guys, none of this is hard science. This is all observation. This is all anecdotal from me. So another question that goes right along with that, um, which I kind of just answered, is frequency of decompression walks. How often do we actually have to do this? Every day is best. Every day is ideal. If you can't do every day, every other day is your next goal. Um, if you can't do that, then you need to plan them strategically to follow stressful um, or arousal-producing events. So if you've got agility class on Wednesday nights, you need to plan a decompression walk for Thursday. Um, that kind of thing. Um, people ask all the time about daylight. There's really no problem with doing a decompression walk in the dark if you feel safe doing it. If you don't feel safe doing it, then don't do it. This depends on your on you. This depends on where you live. Um, probably depends on if you're a man or a woman. Probably depends on if you walk alone. Pay attention to it. You can do this in the dark if you feel safe doing it. It really is fine. Dogs are primarily olfactory. They are mostly working off scent here. They don't care that it's dark. Um, it's you that, care that cares that it's dark. Um... 
urban settings, people ask a lot about, you know, how do I actually get this done in an urban setting? I've got to drive, you know, an hour, an hour and a half to get anywhere that is nature-like. So I've got a couple of options for you. One is that you can do a cookie trail. So you can do food scatters um, in a local park, then get the dog out of the car and follow the cookie trail. That's a nice, easy way to decompress. Piggybacking off that question, no food scatters will not train your dog to eat garbage. Eating garbage and enjoying it trains your dog to eat garbage. <laughs> so if you are somewhere um, that's got a lot of garbage, pick it up before you walk. Because if they're going to eat it and like it, then they're going to eat it again. Scatters in and of themselves teach the dog to look for scatters. doesn't teach the dog to eat garbage. Um, so... So back to urban settings, something that I really like to do um, for those urban dogs is go to a soccer field, go to a um, a public park or even a schoolyard if you have permission. A lot, of, most um, public schools after hours are open to the public, so as long as there are no children in session, you can go onto the schoolyard and use them. And a lot of them are fenced in now, so um, they make for some decent decompression areas. So. Allowing the dog to just kind of zigzag a soccer field on a long line in a harness is sometimes the best that people can do right off the bat. But you would be amazed at what it will do for you if you just start doing that. You don't need to have your dog, you know, frolicking through a gorgeous mountainside to have it be decompressing. Decompression comes in many, many forms. And if the best you can do is you know, wandering a schoolyard after hours on a long line in a harness, then that's the best you can do. And I'm going to say that's not a failure. That's your best. And your best is never a failure. Um, people ask about recalls all the time because I do mention that I try not to call my dogs often on the walk. I'm going to do a separate podcast on recalls coming up soon. Um, one thing is that understand that when you recall a dog during a walk, um, if the primary reinforcer you are giving for the recall, because you always should be, I always give food for my dogs coming back to me. If the primary reinforcer you're giving um, is not better to them than the walk itself, which for many, many dogs, it's never going to be. It takes a pretty hungry dog to care more about the food than the freedom that they have. Um if freedom is greater than the food, then actually calling them away from freedom for food can act as a punisher and can actually negatively affect your recall. So you don't want to be doing it very often. So I call my dogs when I have to and I give them a big payoff for it. And until then, I just pay them for checking in. And I produce dogs that check in pretty often by doing so. Um, I just pay them for checking in and then I release them back. And also 99 times out of 100, they come back to me. They do not get their leash put on. They get sent back to the walk. So very, very important um, to layer that in. I think a lot of people really encourage their students um, or their friends or themselves to practice a lot of frequent recalls during the walk. I have witnessed that to be less effective than people um, than people want it to be. So just for me, for my personal purposes, I do not recall my dogs often on the walks. I recall them occasionally on the walk. I pay them and then I send them off. Um couple of safety tools that I like to use. I carry a product called Spray Shield. Uh, I think it's made by PetSafe, but I buy it on Chewy.com. Um, 
it looks like a can of mace or pepper spray, but it's a can of citronella. And it's just designed, it's basically, an, it's literally labeled as an animal deterrent spray. I use it if a conflict comes about between my dog and another off-leash dog. So it's a quick, easy way to break up a conflict between two dogs without hurting anybody or causing any problems. When I used to have a dog that was severely dog aggressive, Kelso, I used it preemptively. If a dog was approaching me, I asked the owners to call them. If the owners failed to recall the dog, I would spray the dog with the spray shield. Um, Did that irritate owners? Yes. Did it irritate them less than my dog putting a hole in their dog? Yes. So (laughs) I did it um, pretty religiously with him. I would just ward off the other dog if possible because I didn't want him to bite their dog. Um, other safety tools, I really like those. You can also use an umbrella. You can pop open an umbrella towards oncoming um, stray dogs, loose dogs, or even wildlife and scare them away. Caveat there is that you need to prepare your dog for it. So I would pop open the umbrella and throw food. Pop open the umbrella and throw food. I would show them that contingency early on so that you don't actually wind up scaring your own dog and causing them to run away. Um, I also put attach bear bells to my dogs if I'm going to be in dense forest where I can't see them or if um, wildlife is a potential issue. So I'm a fan of bear bells. Somebody did ask, you know, is it? is a walk with a bear bell on really decompressing. And that's going to go with uh, one of my later questions I'm going to answer. But the answer is it depends on your dog. If your dog is afraid of the bear bell, then no, that's a problem. Uh, my dogs are not afraid of them. They, n- none of them like it um, to begin with, but we do a little bit of work on that and then they don't mind it anymore. So bear bells are another safety tool that I like. Uh, managing reactivity. That piggybacks really nicely on the safety tools talk because if your dog has issues with dogs or people approaching him, you need to be prepared to manage that better. So a few things. Number one, a basket muzzle is your friend. One of my dogs goes on decompression walks in a basket muzzle pretty much religiously. The reason is I'm not 100% sure. Um, I Not that we're ever 100% sure, but I like that dog to be wearing it just in case, just in case we run into somebody that irritates her, scares her, whatever. Um, so a basket muzzle is your friend. You also need to scope out your spots. If you've got another dog that is non-reactive that you can go scope out that spot with before you take your reactive dog, then do that. Um, but mostly for reactive dogs, what you're going to want is clear span areas. So you don't want to be hiking in dense forest where you cannot see what's coming. So you want wide open trails where you can see what's coming easily or go back to that schoolyard idea or that um, public park idea. Go at a low traffic time. Go when it's cold. Go when it's dark. Go when it's raining. Um, Use a long line and a harness and just zigzag the area. The sad thing about reactive dogs is that they usually need these decompression walks more than any of the other dogs, and they're not the ones that are ever getting them because their people are so averse to their dog's um, kind of reactive outbursts in public. And I'm just going to tag this along here. There are trainers that can help you, and if you've already used a trainer and they didn't help you, I'm sorry. Look for another one. Your dog deserves to be out in public getting exercise, and if they can't, they need better help. Um, and then most of the questions that I get about decompression start like this. Does it count if, 
does it count as the decompression walk if? Um, kind of like, does it count if the dog's wearing a bear bell or does it count if it's in the dark? And the answer is always, it depends. The answer is always look at the data in front of you. Was the dog more relaxed after or was the dog hyped up after? Was your next day training sessions pretty much solid and the same or were they not? Um, it's clear to me that walks around the neighborhood on concrete on leash have a negative effect on Felix. And it's clear to me that decompression walks off leash hikes in the forest or on the beach have a positive effect on him. This is clear to me because I watch his behavior closely, I make observations, and I take data. If you're not taking data, if you're not observing, then you're not actually going to know. So you do need to actually pay attention to that. The answer to does it count if is always it depends. Some people want to know, you know, can I take my multiple dogs together? Does it count if they're just chasing each other down the trail? Well, it depends. Look at their behavior. For some dogs, no, that's not going to count. Um, for some dogs, that's going to be highly stressful or highly arousing, and it's not going to act as decompression for them. So think about that um, when you're going out on your decompression walks. And please, please go on decompression walks. Share that you're doing it online um, with your friends. I have seen, you know, my community on Facebook. I've got a Worked Up community Facebook page for people who've been through the Worked Up course or seminars. And they're always sharing about their decompression walks. And it makes me so happy um, because they're really pushing each other to get out there and their dogs are really benefiting from it. So be sure that you, you know, get online and check that out, build a community, encourage each other. Because one of the big things that helped me to make this a daily practice was having a friend that said, hey, this needs to be a daily practice. Let's make sure that we're both doing this every day. Um, and I think that that can be definitely invaluable. So thanks, you guys, for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to CogDog Radio. If you have questions or suggestions, shoot them over to CogDogRadio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like the CogDog Radio Facebook page. And until next time, happy training.